beautiful words that we've sung. I do pray that uh, they reflect our heart, the reality of our heart, uh, that we meditate uh, not only on the words, uh, but on the truths that they convey, speaking of your character, which is holy, 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 the wonder of the cross, the wonder of salvation, and all the more against the backdrop of what has consumed our attention these last few weeks and will in the ones to come, against the backdrop of the rise of the evil one, the Antichrist, and the world that will so readily follow him. Against that backdrop, the wonder of your grace stands all the more brightly. The wonder of salvation in your dear and beloved Son who demonstrated your love because while we were yet sinners, he died for us and we rejoice in his death on our behalf and his resurrection. Prepare our hearts now to hear your voice and prepare them to take your table. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. We'll go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, 15, although only for a moment as we will be launching again into the book of Daniel as we did last week. I'll give you a brief uh, update that we will be looking at Daniel chapter 11 through 12 this morning, then we will be taking a couple of weeks break. I think we're going to be in Second John with Pastor Reardon, and then we'll come back uh, and jump right back into Matthew 24. Now before we begin this morning, I want to make just a brief comment about biblical prophecy. Brief comment about biblical prophecy. And it's this, although there are many things that need to be said, but one that relates particularly to our passage this morning is this. Namely, that sometimes when God prophesies or foretells a future event, a far future event, He will give a nearer application. He'll he'll give a nearer event that foreshadows what is to come. I think one of the examples that jumped into my mind when thinking about this was in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Don't don't turn there, I'm only going to mention it to you. In Isaiah chapter 40, God is now, through the prophet, turning his attention to the future nation of Israel and their return into the land. And as part of this preparation, he's preparing them for this future exodus, as it were, back from their exile to Jerusalem. He says this in verse 3, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, in the most immediate context of Isaiah, this is going to be illustrated or captured in the events of the people's return to the land. Indeed, God did clear a way for them through Cyrus for them to return back to the land. And God went before them, as it were, uh, to do that. However, this same prophecy is directly applied to John the Baptist in his announcement of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 3.3 says this, This is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In other words, that past event of God paving the way for His people to go back into the land was but a foreshadowing. It was a foretaste of the greater coming of God and deliverance of His people when He sent the Messiah and He sent His prophet, John the Baptist, to prepare the way and the hearts of the people for Him. Now this idea 
of this foreshadowing, this preparing, is the reality behind Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 15, in which he says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and then he details how his people are to respond to this sign of the abomination of desolation set up in the temple of God. In other words, it is that abomination of desolation in the temple, in the holy place, that is the definite marker of the next phase of the final days before his return. By way of reminder, you remember in verses 4 through 14, Jesus described those events as the beginning of birth pains. He says that in verse 8. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. They are not everything that's going to come but they mark the initiation of these final days before God returns, before Christ returns. And then at the end of these beginning of the birth pains, in verse 14, he gives this ominous statement, then the end will come. Then the end will come. This is the end of the age. This is the return of the Messiah. His second return, of course, he came the first time he was rejected, He comes a second time to establish his kingdom. And it is in these end times, these days that are referred to as the the end that will come, that are called the great tribulation. In verse 21, there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And again, Jesus marks these days by the sign of the abomination of desolation that will be set up in the holy place, in the temple of God. Now, as we mentioned last week, that this abomination of desolation, which Jesus himself specifically identifies as having been mentioned previously through the prophet Daniel is again what will mark these final days. And we noted that this then is mentioned three times in the book of Daniel. In chapter 9, verse 27. In chapter 11, verse 31. And in chapter 12, verse 11. Now we covered last time, briefly, but hopefully sufficiently, what is known as the final, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And particularly we focused on the 70th week of Daniel, which we understand to be yet a future week that is yet to be fulfilled. And it has to do with the concluding of God's purposes for His people Israel on this earth before the establishment of His kingdom as was their hope, the hope of Israel. You can go ahead and turn back to Daniel chapter 9. Go ahead and turn back to Daniel chapter 9. And just glance back first at verse 24. Verse 24. And you can go ahead and stay in Daniel. We're going to spend the rest of our time there this morning. He says in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, here's the complete picture. Here's the paradigm of God's work for the nation of Israel on this earth. It's the big picture of what their future holds. In verse 27, we noted it was the beginning of what is sometimes called the 70th week of Daniel. It is an unfulfilled week in the history of the people of Israel. 
And it begins by saying that he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings on the wing of abominations. And there then is the first reference in the book of Daniel to what Jesus alluded to or referred to in Matthew chapter 24. This then is the marker of the one who is to come. It will be marked by this abomination of desolation. And his one who will arise, who will establish this abomination of desolation, is one who will make a covenant for the period of one week, a firm covenant, he says. In the middle of the week, he's going to break that covenant and unleash untold suffering, put a stop to sacrifice, and one who makes desolate. And we noted last time that this cannot refer to 70 A.D. This cannot refer to the events of 70 A.D. Indeed, those events foreshadowed it. Indeed, those events in some ways prepared for the greater event that will happen. But they were not a fulfillment of what God is prophesying here through Daniel. Just a couple of pointers on that. First of all, this desolation that this one who's going to bring, who makes a covenant, comes after the temple has already been destroyed in verse 26. The temple has already been destroyed. With a flood has already come. Desolations have already happened. A period of war has already taken place. It is after those events that this one is going to come, this he whom we identified as the prince of the people who destroyed the temple back in verse 26, which we hold to be a reference to the destruction in 70 AD. But this beginning in verse 27 cannot be those events. It does not fulfill what is required by what Daniel reveals. Namely, a covenant for 70 years, renewed sacrifices, which never happened after 70 AD and still to this day have not happened. Temple worship and so forth all of which are present in verse 27. Now once this final one has made a desolation, he will remain in power until his end comes. Until his end comes. And again, we're talking here about an individual. An individual. An individual who in making this covenant is demonstrating that he is one who has the political, the military influence to bring about such a distinct and amazing event. Indeed, the amazing reality of one who can bring peace between Israel and our neighbors has perplexed the Middle East throughout the ages and particularly in our generations after World War II beginning around 1947. I couldn't find it. I looked for it uh, this week. Uh, for a little bit, but I had read in an article on the front page of the Jerusalem Post a while back where one commentator or one writer said this, that the one who could come, if one could come and bring peace between Israel and the Palestinians, it would be superhuman. It would be almost godlike, and I'm paraphrasing what he said. And indeed, that is exactly the stage that we would expect to be set for the fulfillment of what Daniel is referring to here in verse 27. So this one is going to arise, he's going to make a covenant for a week with the people of Israel that is going to bring a peace, it will be a false peace, he will turn on that covenant and then he himself will remain in power until he is destroyed, but destroyed he will be. And we noted then also that these sequence of events fit precisely 
what God anticipated in Daniel chapter 7, we won't turn there, verses 24 through 27, precisely the events of Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28, and precisely the events of Revelation, and then we would argue the whole New Testament and the epistles of Paul. This is the picture. Evil will be determined in this world, even against the Jews, but it is not the fulfillment of God's final judgment and salvation for them. This is to await the end days when one who is the epitome of evil will arise and wreak untold destruction on the people of God and also at that time God will bring his salvation to them. Now that then in verse 27 is the first reference to the abomination of desolation. There is a second reference that is to be found in chapter 11. Chapter 11, so you can turn over there if you need to. And the reference is found in chapter 11, verse 31. Let me read it to you, and then we're going to back up and talk about it in a little bit more detail. In verse 31, he says this, Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, there's our term, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Abomination of desolation. Now this is a startling prophecy. As all of Daniel is, as a matter of fact, as a little footnote here, because of the clarity and the accuracy and the specificity of the prophecy of Daniel, those who deny the supernatural nature of the Word of God claim that it had to have been written after these events because there's no way such clarity and such detail could have been written beforehand. But in fact, we know that the God who declares the end from the beginning has no problem to do that and to choose his prophet to do that. And in fact, that's what we have in Daniel. Nonetheless, this is a startling prophecy that mimics in some ways the prophecy of Daniel 9.27, the 70th week. However, here, the prophet is not writing about the final Antichrist. He's writing about another ruler, particularly a Seleucid ruler. We'll talk about that in a bit. By the name of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. Now, before jumping right into verse 31, we want to take a little bit of time to set the context. Now, this is going to be very broad, but hopefully we'll set the context for us to better understand what Daniel is talking about here in verse 31. So let's note the general context. Now, essentially, Daniel 11 is an expanded account of the prophecy that was introduced concerning the nation of Greece, well, the Median Persian Empire, then the nation of Greece and everything that would follow after that, that he mentioned in chapter 8. And here he is detailing then the ongoing conflicts primarily between the kingdom of the south, which is Egypt, and the kingdom of the north, which is represented by the Seleucid Empire. And this conflict is what took place in the years ensuing after or following Israel's return to the land. Israel's return to Jerusalem and Judah and the surrounding area after upon the exile. So let me remind you of this. From the time of Israel's exile, that is when she was taken into captivity, which was over a span, there were three major events, and it was over a span of about 605 B.C. to about 586 B.C. After her return to the land, which took place after 70 years of captivity, so around the 530s B.C. to 444 B.C., the ancient Near East during that time experienced dramatic changes in empires, which is the normal course for world history. 
Now, at the time of Judah's captivity to Babylon, or captivity to Babylon, Babylon was the dominant nation in that area. It was the preeminent power in that area. However, Babylon eventually fell to the Median Persian Empire, which is noted uh, in Daniel chapter 5 and 7 and then in other chapters. And in fact, it was the Persian ruler Cyrus who was mentioned by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44 and 45, who was the instrument of God, even called the anointed one, who was used by God to allow his people to return back to the land after their exile. However, following the Median Persian Empire, it was the kingdom of Greece that would come to have the most dominant and the long-lasting influence in the ancient Near East, really their influence carrying us into the New Testament and even, as, uh, even an influence on the Roman Empire in many ways. Now, as prophesied in Daniel 6 through 8, the nation of Greece quickly dominated that part of the world at that time. And the key leader who brought about that domination was Alexander the Great, who had this meteoric rise to power and who spread through his military brilliance an empire that extended all the way from Macedonia in the west to India in the east and down to Egypt and a little bit beyond in the south. It was a massive, massive empire. And in addition to his military prowess, he was also a lover of all things Greek. In fact, one of the main accomplishments of Alexander's conquest in the eyes of many, is the fact that he Hellenized that part of the world, which is a fancy way to say that he implemented Greek culture and language and influence on those conquered people. Indeed, there was a part of that that was because of a, his uh, political uh, insight that sought to unify conquered peoples, but it was also because those are the things that were near and dear to his heart. However, despite... His brilliant military career, Alexander died around the age of 33 and his kingdom was parceled out to four of his generals. And as a matter of fact, that's chronicled in detail. We won't turn to these passages. You can mark them down. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 8, and at the beginning of 11, chapter 11 of Daniel. Look, just to, again, setting the context here. And now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This is speaking to Alexander here. Verse 4, but as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside him. This then is a reference to what happened upon or after Dan, uh, Alexander's death. It was parceled out, his kingdom was, to his four generals. Now, of these four generals, one by the name of Ptolemy gained power in Egypt, which is the kingdom of the south in Daniel, and the other named Seleucus over the northern kingdoms. And the history following the death of Alexander consisted largely of the ongoing conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. Now remember, this conflict is taking place after Israel has been brought back into the land. So where does that place Israel? Kingdom of the north, kingdom of the south, 
Israel's right in the middle of these two warring kingdoms, these two warring rulers. And essentially then, Israel played an historically a pivotal role among these two nations because they represented either the northern border of the kingdom of the south or the southern border of the kingdom of the north. And so she played a strategic role politically and militarily in the life of these two kingdoms. And each of these kingdoms wanted allegiance from the nation of Israel and they wanted to exert their influence and control over them. Now you have to go through all of that because that's the vantage point of Daniel chapter 11. That's what's going on, essentially. Now, from the kings of the north, one particular ruler would arise and play a central role in the history of Israel, ultimately giving rise to the Maccabean Revolt in 167 AD and foreshadowing the Antichrist anticipated in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. I mentioned him earlier, but the name of this ruler is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, the name Antiochus he inherited from his forefathers. However, the name Epiphanes, which means illustrious one or manifest one, he gave to himself. Now, just as a little side note and an insight into his character, which Daniel is going to bring out in just a moment, this name Epiphanes was changed by the Jews and some of his contemporaries to Epimanes, which means the madman. That's how he was viewed by his contemporaries. It's a testimony to his character. Now, although he was an able ruler in many ways, he was also one of the most wicked, and he brought untold misery to the people of Israel. And he's introduced to us, you can look down in verse 21 of Daniel 11, with these words, in his place, referring to his father, in his place a despicable person will arise. A despicable person will arise. This is the one nicknamed the madman. Now, in verses 21 through 27 here of Daniel chapter 11, Daniel essentially chronicles with amazing detail the ongoing conflict between Antiochus, remember the ruler of the northern kingdom, and the Ptolemies down in the southern kingdom. It's an interesting and a fascinating history. And the details of this, of course, are beyond the purpose of the message this morning, although just for your interest, it includes the story of Antony and Cleopatra and other things you might be familiar with. But we're going to jump jump down into verse 28. Verse 28 to give the immediate context of verse 31 and the abomination of desolations that Jesus is referring to in part. Now notice at the beginning of verse 28 it says this. Then he, this is speaking of Antiochus, he will return to his land with much plunder. But his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. When it says he will return to his land with much plunder, this is returning back from a successful military campaign in Egypt, the kingdom of the south. He's had a successful military campaign. He's now heading back to his own country, victorious, and as Daniel says, with much plunder. But then it says that he set his heart well, his heart, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. Now, although Antiochus left Egypt victorious, there was, while he was away, a rumor about his death that had spread throughout the land, and particularly to the Jews in Jerusalem, which led to a coup against Antiochus and one of that Antiochus had set in authority over that land. Let me just give a 
brief background to that. Like his predecessor, Alexander the Great, Antiochus IV sought to impose Greek culture and influence throughout his kingdom as a controlling and as a unifying force. However, there were two groups among the Jews, those who went along with his policies. These were essentially apostate Jews. They supported the imposition of Greek culture and religion. And then there were others who opposed it. Now, before Antiochus began his campaign, from which he's returning in verse 28, he had placed a high priest by the name of Melanius who was supportive of him. However, when the news of Antiochus' death in Egypt had reached Jerusalem, another priest who was no better than Melanius, who also supported Hellenization of Jerusalem and the Jews, and who also had his own intentions and purposes. Nonetheless, when he realized that or had heard that Antiochus had died, this one named Jason, the second high priest, went and deposed Melanius to establish his own authority over the land. Now he, too, was eventually removed by those more faithful Jews, you could say, who opposed both Hellenism and Antiochus. Well, in fact, Antiochus did not die, and he was not killed in battle. So when he got word of this, he was infuriated. He was enraged at their rebellion against him and his rebellion against his authority. And so as he returned from Egypt, it is, as Daniel said, he set his heart against the Holy Covenant, that is, Jerusalem. And then he says he will take action and return to his own land. So on his way back to his own land, angry with the opposition against him, he took action. And as a side note, to show his treachery, he specifically waited to take this action on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Jews would not resist on the Sabbath. And so he took them at their most vulnerable point to enact violence and treachery against them. And it was, in fact, a great slaughter on the Jews. He killed as many as 80,000 men, women, and children, plundered more than 18,000 talents of gold from the temple, and sold as many as 40,000 Jews into slavery. I can't read all it said about him, but let me give you the account that is in 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees. It gives an account of this. He says this, And after that Antiochus had smitten Egypt, he returned again and went up against Israel and Jerusalem with a great multitude and entered proudly into the sanctuary and took away the golden altar and the candlestick of light and all the vessels thereof and the table of the showbread and the pouring vessels and vials, censers of gold, veil, crowns, golden ornaments, all of this stuff that he's taking out of the temple. And even the, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies and the holy place. And he took the silver and the gold and precious vessels. And also took the hidden treasure, treasures he found. And when he had taken all away, he went into his own land, having made a great massacre and spoken very proudly. Spoken very proudly. So it was a terrifically horrible event in the life of the Jews. However, as bad as this was... It was not the worst that was to come. And here as we move into verse 30 and 31, we enter into the treachery that is alluded to by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 verse 15 and those deeds that were anticipatory of the Antichrist. Look at verse 29. 
says, and he at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way that it did before. Verse 30, for ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action, so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the covenant. Verse 29 says, at the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this time it will not turn out the way that it did before. And with this context, then again, is the great act of treachery against the people of Israel. Now, in 168 BC, Antiochus mounted a large army to once again go against Egypt, the Ptolemies in Egypt, to establish his influence. However, by this time, there's another major player on the scene. Who do you think it is? It is the empire of Rome. It is the empire of Rome, which was large and powerful. And by this time, when, he, when Antiochus, the king of the north, goes into the king of the south to establish his control, he is confronted with very unhappy circumstances. Namely, because Rome also wanted the dominant influence over the nation of Egypt. And so, when he went into Egypt, as he began his conquest back through the land, heading to Alexandria, a key city, it says in verse 30 that ships of Kittim will come against him. This is essentially referring to a cohort from Rome, a military cohort from Rome. Basically what happened is the Roman Empire got wind of Antiochus' invasion of Egypt. They sent a Roman general by the name of Gaius Papalius Laenus to stop him. As Antiochus made his way to Alexandria, he was meted by Gaius, who essentially gave him an ultimatum. He gave him an ultimatum. And this is recorded for us by, in other places by, the, by a historian, a second century historian, by the name of Polybius. And he gives the following account. At the time when Antiochus approached Ptolemy and meant to occupy Pelusium, Caius Populus Laenus, the Roman commander, on Antiochus greeting him from a distance and then holding out his hand, handed the king as he had it by him the copy of Senatus Consultum and told him to read it first. So essentially they meet. The Roman general has a document from the Senate in Rome that has specific instructions to give to Antiochus. And so before they have any kind of official greeting, the general simply hands this document to Antiochus. That's what he says. He told him to read it first. Not thinking it proper as it seems to me to make the conventional sign of friendship before he knew if the intentions of him who was greeting him were friendly or hostile. Now here's the point. But when the king, after reading it, said he would like to communicate with his friends about this intelligence, in other words, let me go talk it over with the rest of my crew, Populius acted in a manner which was thought to be offensive and exceedingly arrogant. He was carrying a stick cut from a vine, and with this he drew a circle around Antiochus and told him he must remain inside the circle until he gave his decision about the contents of the letter. Can you imagine this? This is the leader of the northern kingdom facing against a general of the Roman army, a cohort of the Senate as it were, and he is giving him an ultimatum in the most arrogant way. He simply draws a circle around him and says, you have until you step out of this circle to make up your mind. Polybius goes on and says, the king was astonished at this authoritative proceeding, but after a few moments hesitation said he would do all that the Romans demanded. 
And upon this, Papalius and his suite all grasped him by the hand and greeted him warmly and so forth. And then he says, he led his army, speaking of Antiochus, back to Syria, deeply hurt and complaining indeed, but yielding to circumstances for the present. End quote. Now, essentially, Antiochus knew he was unable to go against the superior might of Rome. And he submitted, but he submitted under humiliating circumstances. And indeed, he was humiliated and he was furious. In the words of Daniel, captures this when it says, when he says, he was disheartened. He was disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. And will take action once again against the people of Israel. It says that he became, in the verse 30, enraged at the Holy Covenant. Essentially, Antiochus is now faced with a problem that he wants to fix. Egypt is now going to be in the control and under the influence of Rome. And again, Israel represents then his most southern border, the middle point between the kingdom of the south and of the north. And so he wants to establish his control. And in order to do that, he exerts unusual and cruel force. He wanted nothing less than the destruction of the Jewish religion and the peoples and their complete obedience and submission to him, a Greek ruler. He wanted to eliminate the worship of Yahweh, replace it with the worship of the Greek god, particularly the one he set up was Jupiter Olympus, as a, and the consequence for not obeying his rules were death. And so, sadly, as we read already at the end of verse 30, many of the Jews did follow him. Many of them did apostatize. Many of them did turn their back on the temple and on the Torah and on their countrymen and were willing to side with Antiochus and his Hellenizing influence. They were willing to turn their back on God and others to satisfy their lust and to avoid death. But then we come into verse 31. And it says, forces from him will arise. This refers to troops that Antiochus sent to Jerusalem. And what did they do? He says it. They desecrate the temple, the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. Again, Antiochus knew that he could not allow Jewish religion to flourish because it by its very nature was in opposition to the very things that he needed to establish his control, namely the Greek culture and the worship of their gods. And so he wanted to extinguish every remnant of it. Now again, there's too much here to read, so I'll be selective. But let me give you a few excerpts of what this looked like from both the books of Maccabees and from Josephus. And I'll go through some of this. It says that the king sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should follow the strange laws of the land and forbid burnt offerings. This is what he did. So he made changes in the law. He was making changes to the religion of Israel. He forbid burnt offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings in the temple, that they should profane the Sabbath and festival days, that is, not observe them, and pollute the sanctuary and holy people. He set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrificed the swine's flesh and unclean beast, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanliness and profanation to the end that they might forget the law and change all of the ordinances. Again, he wanted a complete dissolution of the Jewish religion. 
He goes on to say in 1 Maccabees that they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar and builded idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side and burnt incense at the doors of their houses and in the street. And when they had rent in pieces the books of the law which they found, they burnt them with fire. And wheresoever was found any book of the testament, that is scripture, if anyone consented to the law... The king's command was, or did not consent to the law. The king's command was that they should put him to death. In other words, you obey or you die. It says later in 2 Maccabees that, that someone was sent to compel the Jews to depart from the laws of their fathers and not to live after the laws of God and to pollute also the temple in Jerusalem to call it the temple of Jupiter Olympius. He says, later on, the altar was filled with profane things which the law forbiddeth. Neither was it lawful for a man to keep Sabbath days or ancient feasts or to profess himself to be a Jew. He goes on, but listen to this summary account in Josephus, referring to this time. He says, and when the king had built an an idol altar upon God's altar, he killed swine upon it, and so offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. He also compelled them to forsake the worship which they paid to their God and to adore those whom he took to be gods and made them build temples to raise idol altars every Uh, idol altars every city and village and to offer swine upon them every day. Totally offensive. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed his injunction. What happened if they transgressed? These. They were whipped with rods, their bodies were torn to pieces, and they were crucified while they were still alive and breathed. They also strangled those women and their those women and their sons whom they had circumcised as the king had appointed hanging their sons about their necks as they were upon the crosses. So if any mother had their child circumcised and the king was made aware of it they were killed and the child hung around the neck of the mother. He goes on to say and if there was any sacred book of the law found it was destroyed and those with whom they were found miserably perished also. The point is this. The destruction, the violence, the blasphemy, the idolatry, the death, the torture were horrendous. Horrendous. It was one of the more rare displays of the hatred, the satanic inspired hatred against the Jews in all of their history. Comparable maybe only in our own times to Hitler and what he did when he killed millions of Jews and others, but particularly Jews. It was one of the worst atrocities committed against God's people and God's temple in all of their history. Absolutely horrendous. However, and this is important, and we're going to have to end here in Daniel 11 this morning. We'll get to Daniel 12 next time. But this is the important point. As horrendous as it was, as terrible as these atrocities were, this was not yet the end, nor was it the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 27. This is not the fulfillment of what Daniel was speaking of. It was a foreshadowing. It was anticipatory. It was looking forward, but it was not a fulfillment. And just let me make this clear by giving you at least a few points on this. First of all, the prophecy of 927 ends when the one who made the covenant is destroyed. 
is destroyed, is completely destroyed. However, and we won't have time to get there, but in Daniel chapter 11, 32 through 35, the, immediate, the verses immediately following, it records what in history is known as the Maccabean Revolt. You may have heard of it. Under the leadership of Matthias and uh, Maccabee and his son Judas. Later it was carried on by others. But those were the main initial leaders of this revolt against the plans of Antiochus. They led Jewish opposition against him and eventually they won. And they reversed these things that Antiochus had imposed. And in 164 AD, they had actually cleansed the temple and reinstituted worship to God, worship to Yahweh. This cannot then be the events spoken of in verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. Moreover, Antiochus was not present during many of these atrocities. Rather, the troops that he sent and the support that he aroused from the apostate Jews were the ones who were enacting this. He was largely back off in his own country and on other military campaigns. Therefore, also, he was not killed by the Maccabeans. Antiochus wasn't. Rather, he died, some report, insane in Persia after his failed military attempts and when he heard about this Maccabean revolt which had undone his influence and work in the land of Israel. Secondly, this. While Antiochus covered his initial intent with overtures of peace, there was no covenant of peace which he ever made and no covenant of peace which he broke after three and a half years, which is what is described in Daniel chapter 9. Moreover, in Daniel 9, 26-27, there are specific markers that do not match these events. Nor did the events of eleven twenty-eight through 31 match what Daniel said would be covered in chapter 9. Namely, putting an end to sin and atonement for sin and bringing in the kingdom and shutting up prophecy and so on and so forth. And though the temple was restored by the Maccabean revolter at the end of it, the spiritual state of Jerusalem quickly digressed and you have another terrible history of spiritual unfaithfulness in the history of the Jews. Again, not bringing in everlasting righteousness. And note fourthly this, that Jesus still looks forward to the fulfillment of this reality in the future. Here's the point. Antiochus Epiphanes IV was a precursor. He foreshadowed the deeds and the character of the one to come. But the final one to come, the final Antichrist, the final evil ruler, the one ultimately appointed by God to fulfill His will, even though it is marked with such destruction, this final one will outdo Antiochus in wickedness and devastation that he brings not only upon Israel, but upon the whole world. That is the one that is still being waited for. As terrible as he was, as terrible as the destruction and the atrocities and the suffering that Antiochus brought on his people, it was not the end. It was just as what it was said at the end of verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. Wars are still going to happen. Desolations are still going to happen. There's still suffering for your people. And it's going to continue to happen until this one comes who brings a false covenant of peace to Israel. And as was mentioned before, beloved, one of the purposes and the effects that understanding this should have is that we do not view world events with blinders on. We understand it. We may not like it. It doesn't say we don't take initiative where we're able to, but it does mean we understand it. What would we expect if this is a future prophecy? We would expect Israel to be back in the land. 1947, they were in the land, a Jewish nation state. 
what would we expect? We would expect that conflict there to grab the attention essentially of the world because of the lack of peace in that region, which is so essential to other things. We would expect that. We would expect in the nation of Israel, recognized as a nation, that there would be a desire to rebuild the temple, which has always been a desire there. In fact, the old temples, as I mentioned before, and you're probably familiar with, the Holy of Holies is where the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim, the, the Muslim mosque, is now in the land of Jerusalem. And once where the glitter of Herod's temple and the white marble and gold glittered for miles around, now when you look at the city of Jerusalem, what do you see? The gold dome of the mosque. This is exactly what we would expect to see. This is exactly what we would expect to take place on the scene of world history. And there are many other things too. Now there's one final note that I want to just mention and then we'll pick it up next time we come back to this passage in a few weeks. And it's this. And I'm just going to mention it very, very briefly here. That the abomination of desolation that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, 11 is referring to those events that will take place at the end. The time of the end. The time just before the coming of Christ. However, Daniel 11.35 ends with the period following the Maccabean Revolt, which put an end to the abominations of Antiochus, purified the temple, and essentially established a line of Jewish rulers for the most part. But yet in verse 36, we have this amazing transition that takes place. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And we'll pick this up later, but I would note to you that after such a very, very precise and specific prophetic picture of the future events for Israel, nothing after the death of Antiochus and after the success, the initial success of the Maccabean revolt fits these prophecies. Nothing. And nothing has yet in the history of the Jews. And so we would maintain, beginning at verse 36 all the way down to verse 45, Daniel is now turning his attention to the one that Antiochus foreshadowed, namely the Antichrist and his coming ministry of destruction and treachery that Antiochus only foreshadowed. That the final evil ruler, the one who's going to come and the one who is making the covenant at the beginning of Daniel 27 and breaking it in the middle is referred to beginning in verse 36. This coming evil ruler will be the very embodiment of evil and hatred of the Jewish people and be under the full control of Satan and fulfill his ultimate desire to rule and destroy and receive the worship that belongs to God alone. This is indeed the one mentioned by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 who sets himself in the temple and wants to be treated and receive worship as God. This is the one referred to in Revelation 13, the false prophet who demands that all worship the beast and his image. And we'll talk about that in some detail tomorrow. But as we come into the Lord's table, I want to remind us of this. The glorious truth that these events, as horrible and as horrendous as they are, are foretold by God. In other words, He is the sovereign one. He is the one who is on the throne. 
And indeed, though the suffering of God's people will be great during this time, we remember in the table this morning, what? We remember a kingdom that will not be shaken and will not be taken away. We do not serve a passing king. We do not serve an impudent king. We do not serve a king that bows or fears any other world power. Indeed, he created and rules over all of them. And this is the king that by sovereign grace has called us into his kingdom. Has made us citizens of his kingdom. Has given us every promise that he has purchased with his own blood and by his own life. And every good thing given to Him, we participate in through Him by the sovereign grace of God. And that's what we remember in this table. That we together share in the same Father and the same Spirit and have the same future and a part of the same kingdom that will never end and that will ultimately be completed when every tear is wiped away from our eye, when a new heaven and new earth is created, sin is utterly removed, and the temple of God or the throne of God and the presence of God is fully engaged with us on this new universe. That's what we anticipate, and that's what we celebrate, and that's what our hope is. And so I pray that you are a part of that kingdom, and that as we prepare our hearts now... That you will worship God for all that He has done. That you will examine your heart to make sure you are a part of that kingdom. That you truly do love this King and are living for His glory and things eternal. And if not, today is the day to commit yourself to Him in faith and repentance. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in Your Word to lift our hearts up and be amazed at Your sovereignty at your glory, at your faithfulness, at your power, that you are the one who rule the nations. You sit in the heavens and do as you please. You are the sovereign, the only true potentate of the universe. You, Christ, are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and none is your equal. Indeed, the earth is a footstool for your feet. And we praise you and thank you. Help us now and prepare our hearts Holy Spirit, as we come to worship Christ, exalt Him in our hearts and exalt His work in our hearts and conform us to His image even as we remember all that He is for us and has purchased for us. We pray this in His matchless name. Amen.